Section 23 of Soldier's Pay by William Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Sections 1 to 6. 1. Joe, what you say, Loot? I'm going to get married, Joe. Sure you are, Loot, some day, tapping himself on the chest. What's that, Joe? I say good luck. You got a fine girl. Cecily? Joe? Hello. She'll get used to my face. You're damn right. Your face is all right. But easy there. Don't knock him off. boy. as the other lowered his fumbling hand. What do I have to wear him for, Joe? Get married as well without him, can't I? I'll be damned if I know why they make you wear him. I'll ask Margaret. Here, let me have him, he said, suddenly removing the glasses. Damn shame making to keep him on. How's that? Better? Carry on, Joe. 2. San Francisco, California, April 24th, 1919. Margaret, dearest, I miss you so much. If I could only see each other and talk to each other. I sit in my room and I think you are the only woman for me. Girls are not like you. They are so young and dumb you can't trust them. I hope you are lonely for me like I am just to know you are, sweetheart. When I kissed you that day, I know you are the only woman for me, Margaret. You cannot trust them. I told her he's just kidding her. He won't get her a job in the movies. So I sit in my room and outside life goes on just the same. Though we are a thousand miles apart, wanting to see you like hell, I think of how happy we will be. I haven't told my mother yet because we have been waiting we ought to tell her, I think, if you think so, and she will invite you out here, and we can be together all day, riding and swimming and dancing and talking to each other. If I can arrange business affairs, I will come for you as soon as I can. It is hell without you. I miss you, and I love you like hell. J. 3. It had rained the night before, but this morning was soft as a breeze. Birds across the lawn, parabolic from tree to tree, mocked him as he passed lounging and slovenly in his careless, unpressed tweeds, and a tree near the corner of the veranda, turning upward its ceaseless white-bellied leaves, was a swirling silver veil stood on end, a fountain arrested forever, carven water. He saw that black woman in the garden among roses, blowing smoke upon them from her pursed mouth, bending and sniffing above them, and he joined her, with slow-anticipated malice, mentally stripping her straight, dark, unemphatic dress downward from her straight back over her firm, quiet thighs. Hearing his feet on the gravel, she looked over her shoulder without surprise. Her poised cigarette balanced on its tip a wavering plume of vapor, and Jones said, "'I have come to weep with you.' She met his stare, saying nothing. Her other hand blanched upon a solid mosaic of red and green. Her repose absorbed all motion from her immediate atmosphere, so that the plume of her cigarette became rigid as a pencil, flowering its tip into nothingness. I mean your hard luck, losing your intended, he explained. She raised her cigarette and expelled smoke. He lounged nearer, his expensive jacket, which had evidently had no attention since he bought it, sagging to the thrust of his heavy hands, shaping his fat thighs. 
His eyes were bold and lazy, clear as a goat's. She got of him an impression of aped intelligence, imposed on an innate viciousness. The cat that walks by himself. Who are your people, Mr. Jones? she asked after a while. I am the world's little brother. I probably have a bar sinister in my scutcheon. In spite of me, my libido seems to be a complex regarding decency. What does that mean, she wondered. What is your escutcheon, then? One newspaper-wrapped bundle, couchant and rampant. One doorstep stone on a field noir and damned froid. Device, quand mangerai-je? Oh, a foundling, she smoked again. I believe that is the term. It is too bad we are contemporary. You might have found the thing yourself. I would not have thrown you down. Thrown me down? You can never tell just exactly how dead these soldiers are, can you? You think you have him, and then the devil reveals as much idiocy as a normal sane person, doesn't he? She skillfully pinched the coal from her cigarette end and flipped the stub in a white twinkling arc, grinding the coal under her toe. If that was an implied compliment, only fools imply compliments. The wise man comes right out with it point blank. Imply criticism, unless the criticized is not within earshot. It seems to me that this is a rather precarious doctrine for one who is, if you will pardon me, not exactly a combative sort. Combative? Well, a fighting man, then. I can't imagine you lasting very long in an encounter with, say, Mr. Gilligan. Does that imply that you have taken Mr. Gilligan as a protector? No more than it implies that I expect compliments from you. For all your intelligence, you seem to have acquired next to no skill with women. Jones, remote and yellowly unfathomable, stared at her mouth. For instance? For instance, Miss Saunders, she said wickedly. You seem to have let her get away from you, don't you? Miss Saunders, repeated Jones, counterfeiting surprise, admiring the way she had turned the tables on him without reverting to sex. My dear lady, can you imagine anyone making love to her? Epicene. Of course it is different with a man practically dead, he added. He probably doesn't care much whom he marries, nor whether or not he marries at all. No? I understood from your conduct the day I arrived that you had your eye on her, but perhaps I was mistaken after all. Granted I had. You and I seem to be in the same fix now, don't we? She pinched through the stem of a rose, feeling him quite near her. Without looking at him, she said, You've already forgotten what I told you, haven't you? He did not reply. She released her rose and moved slightly away from him. That you have no skill in seduction. Don't you know I can see what you're leading up to? That you and I should console one another? That's too childish, even for you. I have had to play at too many of these sexual acrostics with poor boys whom I respected even if I didn't like them. The rose splashed redly against the front of her dark dress. She secured it with a pin. Let me give you some advice, she continued sharply. The next time you try to seduce anyone, don't do it with talk, with words. Women know more about words than men ever will, and they know how little they can ever possibly mean. Jones removed his yellow stare. His next move was quite feminine. He turned and lounged away without a word. 
for he had seen Emmy beyond the garden, hanging washed clothes upon a line. Mrs. Powers, looking after his slouching figure, said, Oh! She had just remarked Emmy raising garments to a line with formal gestures like a Greek mask. She watched Jones approach Emmy, saw Emmy when she heard his step, poise a half-raised cloth in a formal arrested gesture, turning her head across her reverted body. Damn the beast, Mrs. Powers thought, wondering whether or not to follow and interfere. But what good would it do? He'll only come back later and playing Cerberus to Emmy. She removed her gaze and saw Gilligan approaching. He blurted, Damn that girl! Do you know what I think? I think she... What girl? What's her name? Saunders. I think she's scared of something. She acts like she might have got herself into a jam of some kind and is trying to get out of it by taking the loot right quick. Scared. Flopping around like a fish. Why don't you like her, Joe? You don't want her to marry him? No, it ain't that. Just frets me to see her change her mind every twenty minutes. He offered her a cigarette, which she refused and lit one himself. I'm jealous, I guess, he said after a time, seeing the loot getting married when neither of them want to especially, while well, I can't get my girl at all. What, Joe? You married? He looked at her steadily. Don't talk like that. You know what I mean. Oh, Lord, twice in one hour. His gaze was so steady, so serious, that she looked quickly away. What's that? he asked. She took the rose from her dress and slipped it into his lapel. Joe, what is the beast hanging around here for? Who? What beast? He followed her eyes. Oh, that damn feller, I'm going to beat hell out of him on principle some day. I don't like him. Neither do I. Hope I'm there to see you do it. Has he been bothering you? he asked quickly. She gave him her steady gaze. Do you think he could? That's right, he admitted. He looked at Jones and Emmy again. That's another thing. That Saunders girl lets him fool around her. I don't like anybody that will stand for him. Don't be silly, Joe. She's just young and more or less of a fool about men. If that's your polite way of putting it, I agree with you. His eyes touched her smooth cheek, blackly winged by her hair. If you had let a man think he was going to marry him, you wouldn't blow hot and cold like that. She stared away across the garden, and he repeated, Would you, Margaret? You're a fool yourself, Joe. Only you're a nice fool. She met his intent gaze, and he said, Margaret? She put her swift, strong hand on his arm. Don't, Joe, please. He rammed his hands in his pockets, turning away. They walked on in silence. Four. Spring, like a soft breeze, was in the rector's fringe of hairs. With upflung head, he tramped the porch like an old war horse, who hears again a trumpet after he had long thought all wars were done. Birds in a wind across the lawn, parabolic from tree to tree, and a tree at the corner of the house turning upward, its white-bellied leaves in a passionate arrested rush. It and the rector faced each other in ecstasy. A friend came morosely along the path from the kitchen door. Good morning, Mr. Jones, the rector boomed, scattering sparrows from the screening vine. The tree to his voice took a more unbearable ecstasy. Its twinkling leaves swirled in a never-escaping silver skyward rush. Jones, nursing his hand, replied good morning in a slow, obese anger. 
He mounted the steps, and the rector bathed him in a hearty exuberance. Come round to congratulate us on the good news, eh? Fine, my boy, fine, fine. Yes, everything is arranged at last. Come in, come in. Emmy flopped onto the veranda belligerently. Uncle Joe, she said, shooting at Jones a hot, exulting glance. Jones, nursing his hand, glowered at her. God damn you, you'll suffer for this. Eh? What is it, Emmy? Mr. Saunders is on the phone. He wants to know if you'll see him this morning. I showed you. Teach you to fool with me. Ah, uh, yes. Mr. Saunders coming to discuss plans for the marriage, Mr. Jones. Yes, sir. I'll fix you. What'll I tell him? Do it if you think you can. You never have come off very well yet, you fat worm. Tell him, by all means, that I had intended calling on him myself. Yes, indeed. Ah, oh, Mr. Jones, we are all to be congratulated this morning. Yes, sir, you little slut. Tell him, by all means, Emmy. All right. I told you I'd do it. I told you you can't fool with me, didn't I now? And, Emmy, Mr. Jones will be with us for lunch. A celebration is in order, eh, Mr. Jones? Without doubt. We all have something to celebrate. That's what makes me so damn mad. You said you would, and I let you do it. Slam a door on my hand. Damn you to hell. All right. He can stay if he wants to. Damn you to hell. Emmy arrowed him another hot, exulting glance and slammed the door as a parting shot. The rector tramped heavily, happily like a boy. Ah, Mr. Jones, to be young as he is, to have your life circumscribed, moved hither and yonder at the vacillations of such delightful pests. Women! Women! How charming never to know exactly what you want, while we men are always so sure we do. Dullness, dullness, Mr. Jones. Perhaps that's why we like them, yet cannot stand very much of them. What do you think? Jones, glumly silent, nursing his hand, said after a while, I don't know, but it seemed to me your son has had extraordinarily good luck with his women. Yes, the rector said with interest. How so? Well, I think you told me he was once involved with Emmy. Well, he no longer remembers Emmy. Damn her soul. Slam a door on me. And now he's about to become involved with another whom he will not even have to look at. What more could one ask than that? The rector looked at him keenly and kindly a moment. You've retained several of your youthful characteristics, Mr. Jones. What do you mean? asked Jones with defensive belligerence. A car drew up to the gate, and after Mr. Saunders had descended, drove away. One in particular, that of being unnecessarily and pettily brutal about rather insignificant things. Ah, he added, looking up, here's Mr. Saunders. Excuse me, will you? You will probably find Mrs. Powers and Mr. Gilligan in the garden, he said, over his shoulder, greeting his caller. Jones, in a vindictive rage, saw them shake hands. They ignored him, and he lounged viciously past them, seeking his pipe. It eluded him, and he cursed it slowly, beating at his various pockets. I had intended calling upon you today. The rector took his collar affectionately by the elbow. Come in, come in. Mr. Saunders allowed himself to be propelled across the veranda. Murmuring a conventional response, the rector herded him heartily beneath the fanlight, down the dark hall and into the study, without noticing the caller's air of uncomfortable reserve. He moved a chair for the guest and took his own seat at the desk. 
Through the window he could see a shallow section of the tree that, unseen but suggested, swirled upward in an ecstasy of never-escaping silver-bellied leaves. The rector's swivel chair protested, tilting. Ah, oh, yes, you smoke cigars, I recall. Matches at your elbow. Mr. Saunders rolled his cigar slowly in his fingers. At last he made up his mind and lit it. Well, the young people have taken things out of our hands, eh? The rector spoke round his pipe-stem. I will say now that I have long desired it, and, frankly, I have expected it, though I would not have insisted, knowing Donald's condition, but as Cecily herself desires it. Yes, yes, agreed Mr. Saunders slowly. The rector did not notice. You know, I have been a staunch advocate of it all along. Mrs. Powers repeated your conversation to me. Yes, that's right. And do you know I look for this marriage to be better than a medicine for him? Not my own idea, he added, in swift explanation. Frankly, I was sceptical, but Mrs. Powers and Joe, Mr. Gilligan, advanced at first, and the surgeon from Atlanta convinced us all. He assured us that Cecily could do as much, if not more, for him than anyone. Those were his very words, if I recall correctly. And now, since she desires it so much, since you and her mother support her, do you know— he slapped his collar upon the shoulder. Do you know, were I a betting man, I would wager that we will not know the boy in a year's time? Mr. Saunders had trouble getting his cigar to burn properly. He bit the end from it savagely, then, wreathing his head in smoke, he blurted. Mrs. Saunders seems to have a few doubts yet. He fanned the smoke away and saw the rector's huge face gone grey and quiet. Not objections exactly, you understand, he added hurriedly apologetically. Damn the woman, why wouldn't she have come herself instead of sending him? The divine made a clicking sound. This is bad. I had not expected this. Oh, I am sure we can convince her, you and I, especially with Sis on our side. He had forgotten his own scruples, forgotten that he did not want his daughter to marry anyone. This is bad, the rector repeated hopelessly. She will not refuse her consent. Mr. Saunders lied hastily. It is only that she is not convinced as to its soundness, considering Dot Cecily's, Cecily's youth, you see. He finished with inspiration. On the contrary, in fact, I only brought it up so that we could have a clear understanding. Don't you think it's best to know all the facts? Yes, yes. The rector was having trouble with his own tobacco. He put his pipe aside, pushing it away. He rose and tramped heavily along the worn path in the rug. "'I'm sorry,' said Mr. Saunders. "'This was Donald, my son. He's dead.' "'But come, come, we're making a mountain out of a molehill,' the rector exclaimed at last without conviction. "'As you say, if the girl wants to marry Donald, I'm sure her mother will not refuse her consent. What do you think? Shall we call on her? Perhaps she does not understand the situation, that, that they care for each other so much.' She's not seen Donald since he returned, and you know how rumors get about. This was Donald, my son. He's dead. He paused, mountainous and shapeless, in his casual black, yearning upon the other. Mr. Saunders rose from his chair, and the rector took his arm lest he escape. Yes, that is best. We will see her together and talk it over thoroughly before we make a definite decision. Yes, yes, the rector repeated, flogging his own failing conviction, spurring it. This afternoon, then? This afternoon, Mr. Saunders agreed. Yes, that is our proper course. I'm sure she does not understand. You don't think she fully understands? 
This was Donald, my son. He's dead. Yes, yes, Mr. Saunders agreed in his turn. Jones found his pipe at last, and nursing his bruised hand, he filled and lit it. Five. She had just met Mrs. Worthington in a store, and they had discussed putting up plums. Then Mrs. Worthington, saying goodbye, waddled away slowly to her car. The negro driver helped her in with efficient detachment and shut the door. I'm sprier than her, thought Mrs. Burney, exultantly watching the other's gouty, painful movement. Spite of she's rich and got a car, she added, feeling better through malice, suppressing her own bone aches, walking spryer than the rich one. Spite of she's got money. And here approaching was that strange woman staying at Parson Mahone's, the one that come here with him, and that other man getting herself talked about and right the one everybody expected to marry him, and that he had thrown down for that boy-chasing Saunders girl. Well, she remarked with comfortable curiosity, peering up into the calm white face of the tall dark woman in her dark dress with its immaculate cuffs and collar, I hear you're going to have a marriage up at your house. That's so nice for Donald. He's quite sweet on her, ain't he? Yes, they were engaged for a long time, you know. Yes, they was. But folks never thought she'd wait for him, let alone take him sick and scratched up like he is. She's had lots of chances since. Folks think lots of things that aren't true, Mrs. Powers reminded her. But Mrs. Burney was intent on her own words. Yes, she's had lots of chances. But then Donald has too, and he? She asked cunningly. I don't know, you see. I haven't known him very long. Oh, you ain't? Folks all thought you and him was old friends, like. Mrs. Powers looked down at her neat, cramped figure in its airproof black without replying. Mrs. Burney sighed. Well, marriages is nice. My boy never married. Likes not he would by now. Girls was all crazy about him, only he went to war so young. Her peering, salacious curiosity suddenly left her. You heard about my boy? she asked with yearning. Yes, they told me. Dr. Mahone did. He was a good soldier, wasn't he? Yes, and them folks got him killed with just a lot of men around. Nobody to do nothing for him. Seems like they might have took him into a house where women folks could have eased him. Them others came back spry and bragging much as he please. Trust them officers and things not to get hurt. Her washed blue eyes brooded across the quiet square. After a time, she said, You never lost no one you loved in a war, did you? No, Mrs. Powers answered gently. I never thought so, the other one stated, fretfully. You don't look like it, so tall and pretty. But then most didn't. He was so young, she explained, so brave. She fumbled with her umbrella, and she added briskly, Mahone's boy come back anyway. That's something. Especially as he's taking a bride. She became curious again, obscene. He's all right, ain't he? All right? I mean, for marriage. He ain't. It's just, I mean, a man ain't no right to palm himself off on a woman if he ain't. Good morning, said Mrs. Powers curtly, leaving her cramped and neat in her meticulous airproof black, holding her cotton umbrella like a flag, stubborn, refusing to surrender. 6. You fool, you idiot, marrying a blind man, a, a man with nothing, practically dead. He is not, he is not. What do you call him, then? Aunt Callie Nelson was here the other day saying that the white folks had killed him. You know nigger talk doesn't mean anything. They probably wouldn't let her worry him, so she says he... Nonsense. Aunt Callie has raised more children than I can count. 
If she says he's sick, he is sick. I don't care. I'm going to marry him. Mrs. Saunders sighed creakingly. Cecily stood before her, flushed and obstinate. Listen, honey, if you marry him, you are throwing yourself away. All your chances, all your youth and prettiness, all the men that like you, men who are good matches. I don't care, she repeated stubbornly. Think. There are so many you can have for the taking, so much you can have. A big wedding in Atlanta, with all your friends for bridesmaids, clothes, a wedding trip, and then to throw yourself away after your father and I have done so much for you. I don't care. I'm going to marry him. But why? Do you love him? Yes, yes. That scar, too? Cecily's face blanched as she stared at her mother. Her eyes became dark and she raised her hand delicately. Mrs. Saunders took her hand and drew her resisting onto her lap. Cecily protested tautly, but her mother held her, drawing her head down to her shoulder, smoothing her hair. I'm sorry, baby. I didn't mean to say that, but tell me what it is. Her mother would not fight fair. She knew this with anger, but the older woman's tactics scattered her defences of anger. She knew she was about to cry. Then it would be all up. Let me go, she said, struggling, hating her mother's unfairness. Hush. Hush. There now, lie here and tell me what it is. You must have some other reason. She ceased to struggle and became completely lax. I haven't. I just want to marry him. Let me go, please, Mama. Cecily, did your father put this idea in your head? She shook her head and her mother turned her face up. Look at me. They stared at each other and Mrs. Saunders repeated, Tell me what your reason is. I can't. You mean you won't? I can't tell you. She slipped suddenly from her mother's lap, but Mrs. Saunders held her kneeling against her knee. I won't, she cried, struggling. The other held her tightly. You're hurting me. Tell me. Cecily wrenched herself free and stood. I can't tell you. I have just got to marry him. Got to marry him? What do you mean? She stared at her daughter, gradually remembering old rumours about Mahone, gossip she had forgot. Got to marry him? You mean that you? That a daughter of mine with a blind man? A man who has nothing? A pauper? Cecily stared at her mother and her face flamed. You think... You said that to... Oh, you're not my mother. You are somebody else. Suddenly, she cried like a child, wide-mouthed, not even hiding her face. She whirled, running. Don't ever speak to me again, she gasped and fled, wailing up the stairs, and a door slammed. Mrs. Saunders sat, thinking, tapping her teeth monotonously with a fingernail. After a while, she rose, and going to the telephone, she called her husband downtown. End of section 23. Read by Sandra. Montreal, 2022.